So good evening, everyone, and welcome to your second night of full practice, second day. Here you are again. And um, I was thinking a lot about life on retreat uh, today and thinking about what would be important and thinking about essential dharma. You know, what is it really essential to know or to understand fully about what we're doing here and the path? So I wanted to kind of um, follow on Howie's beautiful talk last night. I just so loved it. And um, continue with a little bit of the theme around happiness and, and, and what we're doing here. So it kind of leaves off on some level with, okay, what we're doing here is looking for lasting happiness, the truth, but how do we do it? Right? What's sort of the path forward? Right? So it's sort of more of the, you could say, the treatment that we're all taking here. <laughs> and again, I love the archetype of the Buddha as a physician and a healer, psychiatrist, shaman, whatever, however you want to relate to it. And um, over his life, he gave out all kinds of different teachings. They say there's 84,000 Dharma doors. And it's a lot. <laughs> and so... Um, you know, thinking about life on retreat and thinking about mindfulness. I want to share some about mindfulness, but infused with love, loving awareness, and how this is an essential ingredient to basically living in the present moment, right? Without kindness and compassion, it's very difficult to traverse this path, right? We, we might start it, but we won't finish it, right? And at first we might have a love affair with the Buddha. When people first come to the Dharma, they're like, this is great. I love it. And then at some point it gets really hard. And then they say, I'm breaking up with you, Buddha. I don't want to look anymore. Right? And so there's so many challenges that come. And life on retreat is really interesting because it's, we, it's sort of an incubator. It's a microscope that we're putting up to experience here. You know, we may practice 20 minutes or an hour at home, but coming on retreats a whole nother level, right? It's this intensity of the looking, right? We stay with experience. There's really nowhere to go. I mean, we could, we could kind of go to our habitual distractions a little bit. Maybe we go in our room and look at our stuff and move it around and, you know, and maybe think about the phone or, you know, we could, there's little things we can do, of course, you know, but ultimately, it's meant to be really a mirror, basically, a mirror. And um, looking in that mirror, at times we see, you know, it's beautiful and great, and then other times it's, it's really hard. And um, so our days here, somebody once said uh, in the meeting this morning, they said, yesterday was the longest day of their entire life, they said. So time even begins to stretch, right? It's like, oh my gosh, it's only five o'clock. You know, geez, we still got a whole evening. Or, or, or sometimes it goes really fast, right? We play with this dimension of space and time. That's what makes retreat powerful is this opportunity to learn. It's like a school, really. It's a hospital and a school, I always say. Cosmic hospital, Right, and I'll talk more about why I say it's a cosmic hospital. 
Uh, and this room kind of has like a spaceship quality, you know, we're all in here. and <laughs> So we're all getting better, you know, together. And, and that's a good thing. It's something really profound that brought you to retreat, that made you want to stop and look in that mirror. Yeah, because um, not everybody is doing that. Not everybody can do that, right? So... So life on retreats has many ups and downs. You know, when ha- one of the things that happens on retreat is that we go through a life review. <laughs> I've noticed this so many times. It can start when you're very young. It's like three years old. Suddenly this memory comes. Somebody in the sandbox hits you or something. And it's like, oh, that was suffering, right? And we process that. And then we go through our life and it's like we review things. Have you noticed this yet? Right? It, it, it's like all these places where we're still maybe holding on, there's still something unresolved or there's a hurt or there's an ener- or a trauma or an energetic, some place of stuckness, right? And we, we start to go through all these imprints. Basically, it's karma, karmic imprints of our lives, one level after another. And so we come often, you know, one of the things about retreat is that sometimes people arrive in an ambulance, right? Everything's falling apart. There's many people who arrive. I noticed the young adult retreat, it's like crisis, nowhere to live, no job, $5. (laughs) Should I go move to India or should I go on a farm or, you know, these epic life decisions, everything's unraveling. But yet we can all arrive like that too. There could be an inner crisis actually, one that we don't share with anybody, but only we know about, right? A depression, uh, maybe some type of behavior that's compulsive or addictive and it's hurting us, but we, we might be really private about that. Or we come to retreat with extreme fatigue. That's something I have noticed with everybody the first few days of a retreat. You know, we work up until the last moment we get here, that last email as we're pulling in. You know, we've done laundry for 24 hours and run around and, you know, and get, and so we arrive at retreat in sort of a very actually depleted state. And um, we're tired and maybe we're hurt about something or we've had a breakup or we're disillusioned or we just think, what's going on? I just need to hit the reset button, right? Some, something like that. Sometimes people arrive like that. Not everybody, but some people do. And then when we get here, we start to deal with all the unfinished business of the heart and mind. Whatever we were thinking about on the weekend, we're going to bring to retreat. All the habits of mind, all the, all the thoughts and the stories. I think that there's this illusion that coming on retreat means that, oh my God, it's going to be so blissful, right? Once I get to Spirit Rock, I'll have a completely different mind, right? <laughs> It's like the food and this or that. And, and that happens over time. As the days go on, it's like we do a cleaning. It's like we clean out our garage, you know, but it takes time. However, wherever you go, as John Cobbett's famous book, there you are. So you could be here and having the same mind, right? Having the mind that's contracted or confused or upset. So we work with that on retreat. 
We bring awareness to that. And we have to kind of come face to face with our suffering, right? We come face to face with stress. Like, what is going on? How is it that we can be in paradise in some level here? We'll use this in some kind of paradise in a retreat center, a quiet day and evening, and that all hell can be breaking loose, right? Has anyone noticed that today? Like fights and drama and all. Uh, Shakespeare, Jack likes to call it, right? Living and dying and uh, everything seems very epic, right? And we've got to make a decision. This is wrong. Something's wrong. I've got to fix it or I've got to do something. All the stories that are so exhausting come, right? They're so tiring when I notice this, these aspects of mind. And I, when I slow down, I meet them. It's like the manic parts, right? Like, what are you doing? What's going on? You know, get up, do something. So we come here and we sort of meet the places inside of us that we've ignored, right? And we meet the heart that is longing for some other way to be, right? We, uh, Angelus Aaron, uh, that teacher, she just passed away, but she used to say, um, we need to go at the speed of life, <laughs> not the speed of light, you know. So we, so we come here and all the ignored places, the forgotten places, they, they, they start to wave their hand. What about me? <laughs> right? What about me? This poem by David White I like. It's called Enough. Enough. These few words are enough. If not these words, this breath. If not this breath, this sitting here, this opening to the life we have refused again and again until now. So Howie's talk was right. You know, he was talking so beautifully about the Buddha and about um, the dukkha that we carry, this suffering. And again, what's so funny about being a a Dharma teacher and and a practitioner and a student first, I'm a student, is that I still always have these places of learning. And when Howie said, we open to suffering, something in me clicked too, like, yes. <laughs> it's like, open to it. What would happen if we stopped fighting and we just sat down and we opened to life as it is? No resistance, right? And we just allowed whatever to be there. That, that's not easy. And I I really admire the Buddha. And I really admire all the Buddhas and all the spiritual practitioners who press the pause button. Because that was some way that he figured things out. It was like all this stuff is going on. In the midst of it, there's this intense suffering, dissatisfaction. There's birth, old age, sickness, death. This seems to be a, a, a cycle going Where's the exit out of this? Where's the freedom in this? Right? So to just sit and stop for a moment and let the whole show unravel itself. Right? It's like a magic show. Let a great Tibetan master say that. It's a dream. Wake yourself up. Right? But how do we wake ourselves up? Isn't that it? It's like, oh, okay, how do we do this? 
where's how do we uncover the happiness that the Buddha uncovered? And that's really the heart of this talk. How do we wake up to reality? So the present moment, we start to discover this as a place to reside. It's like, oh yeah, the present moment. The mind gets going and creates one story after another story after another story. The stories wouldn't be so bad if they were all beautiful, right? But mostly they're pretty bad nightmares. I mean, you know, I've seen my own mind and I've talked to thousands of others, right? It's, it's, it can go very dark very quickly, right? And that's okay. We actually need to see the depths of that, right? We see the illness, right? We have to be willing to see the illness. So the Buddha started to play with what would be, what would it be like to be in the present moment? This is very powerful, right? Not lost in stories, not lost in identification with every single thing, but what if it was just here now, Eckhart Tolle, uh, one of my favorite teachers, he actually writes in The Power of Now, which I love that book. He writes, thoughts stop, the mind becomes silent. What shines through then is the energy of our being. We can dive much deeper into this vertical dimension of time and discover more about our true nature. To dive into the present moment is also the goal of meditation. The present moment is the entry point or the main portal into spiritual awakening. There's something about this being awake and present, this non-distracted attention, right, that we're cultivating here. We're, We're actually learning how to live now awake. There's something powerful that starts to happen about that. I'm trying to... I'm attempting for the longest time to write a book about this. (laughs) And what I've discovered for myself is that when I'm resting in the present moment, there's some kind of alchemy that starts to happen, some type of healing. I use that word. Some people might not relate to that word. But again, using physician and healing the mind, right, of all its confusion, sicknesses, delusions, or however we relate to that. There's something profound that starts to happen through just being awake, not lost in a story. So it's almost like we've turned the TV off and then we sit and observe. And the TV is the mind, many channels in there, right? Every moment, different station, right? So it's like, okay, let's turn this off, right? Even for moments, even for one moment out of a sitting, to feel the present moment is actually very powerful. Some people had, like I I meet people who have been practicing for 30 years, sometimes 40 years, and they'll say, I had this moment in India where I was present. That one moment fuels 40 years of practice. So let's not underestimate the power of one moment, one being here, not distracted, not fighting, not wanting, just pure awareness. There is a profound beauty to that. And the more we learn to abide in that, there's something very deep that starts to unlayer itself. It starts to wake up, essentially. Something else starts to wake up. So this is, this is very, 
very important for us to understand that again and again and to learn how to abide in that moment, to live now, to be here now, to be awake now. In the present moment is the only place reality can be. Somebody commented in one of the groups that they liked where I said, reality is always kinder than our story, right? Because this moment is always kinder than whatever nightmare that we decide to turn, you know, whatever, five o'clock, one life to live comes on, right? Or whatever, or, you know, nightline, and dramas, or whatever, we, whatever we're used to thinking about, whatever we've been feeding the mind, Right? So we discover this, we discover the profundity of the present moment. And I can't tell you that, only you can discover that actually. We could talk about it, we could point to it, I could draw a map of it, I go, here it is. But only every person has to discover that for themselves, right? How to live in that moment, how to uncover it, how to abide in it, how to recognize it actually, because it's always here. I really like this poem by David Wagner. It really speaks to this. He writes, Stand still. The trees ahead and bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here, and you must treat it as a powerful stranger, must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes, listen, it answers. I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again, saying, here. No two trees are the same to the raven. No two branches are the same to the wren. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. So this present time awareness becomes our refuge, right? It's the undistracted mind. It's the mind that's not lost in figuring it out and wanting in the stories, right? It could be a moment where we just look up at the sun setting, right? It's peace. It's a moment of peace. It's what an enlightened being experiences moment to moment. It's like the war is, is ended, right? The war is ended. So we start to uncover this present moment more and more, right? This gap in our habitual thinking, the moments we turn everything off. And we can practice this through mindfulness. What's interesting about the Buddha was he, you know, upon his death, the, his students gathered sometime after he died and they put together a whole collection of his teachings, right? It's called the Pali Canon. It's this great text of teachings. One of the most profound suttas in this collection um, of teachings is called the Satipatthana Sutta. Sati means awareness. And basically, it's a sutta where the Buddha lays out how to live in the present moment, how to be mindful, right? 
And what's profound about this is last night I actually went over reading a book by a, a monk called Analayo. I was rereading some of it. Just again, just it's just so important. It goes in and in and in and in. It's like, oh yeah, okay, here's what we're practicing. What he stated in this sutta was that this is the direct path to Nibbana. There was really nowhere else where he really stated something so profound. It was like at the beginning of this text, he said, this, is, this will end all suffering. This ends all lamentation, fear, anxiety. This is the path that leads to Nibbana, right? leads to freedom, mindfulness, awareness, and here's all the levels of how to practice living awake. And then it was step by step, Step by step, step by step. It was so, it's very profound in that way. So I just wanted to talk about that a little bit and how we can be mindful with love because I've seen for myself that this is a missing ingredient. It's very hard to walk this path, as I mentioned early on, without kindness. How are you paying attention? This is key. Right? There's paying attention, noticing something, but how are you noticing it? What is the flavor in the mind? Right? There is no way that we can get to the end of this path and meet the insanity of our minds unless we have tremendous love and compassion. I mean, it's a force. Right? It's a force in there. It's a force of goodness. You know, as Howie was talking about last night, the life of the Buddha when the Buddha was, had decided to pick up where he left off, and many of you know the story, of course, but as he was sitting under the Bodhi tree, right, so he had discovered the middle path and was eating and taking care of himself. And then he decided, after he had discovered that, he said, I'm not going to stop struggling so much, right? I'm just going to sit. And he re- they said that he recalled a time where he was in his father's garden as a child. And it was a festival, and he was just sitting under a tree with a canopy over him, and it just naturally fell into this very profound meditation. So there was something about like, what if I just paid attention, right? What if I just settled back, relaxed, not struggling, not trying to conquer something, right? I just sit here. Yeah, he didn't make a resolve, I will not get up. So that's a little intense, <laughs> right? And so I've discovered, you know, so he had a, I'll sit here with all the loving awareness in the world and I'm not getting up. So there was also some courageous ferocity in there. Uh, however, he was up for the task, you know, he had been training. But they said that, the, you know, the demons of the mind attacked him. You know, Mara, and hatred and greed and lust and power. You know, Mara being this force of delusion in the mind. Has anyone felt like maybe Mara was hanging out a little bit today in the mind? Mara is always hanging out, right? It's, it's like, you know, it's our challenge. You know, we're always playing a game of chess here. You know, we take a step, <laughs> the deluded mind takes a step. I, I'll stop with that. But um, So when all these things were happening to the Buddha, this hatred and anger and rage and wrathy, he held up his hands, they said, and he was practicing metta. He said, all love, right? It's like, this isn't even real. None of this is real. So that, to me, registered something very deep, that in his moment of conquering 
the delusion, the most powerful demon in the mind, he used his weapon of kindness and metta. So let that be a deep uh, teaching for you because we need to have this quality as our deepest weapon against the confusion and the enormous suffering that can arise during practice, right? The confusion, the trauma, right? Our own hatred, rage, abuse, everything comes up, right? The society, the suffering of the whole planet can, you know, as we sit here, everything comes up to be purified, right? The ego and all its clinging, right? It manifests in the mind. So having mindfulness infused with compassion and loving kindness then becomes a powerful force of purification, right? It's like you've got your two weapons, right? Mindfulness, which mindfulness, just to, just to say, is this quality that we develop. It's not, it doesn't mean, sometimes it's used synony- synonymously with awareness. Awareness is the nature of, of mind, actually. The mind is aware. Mindfulness is this quality that we develop. It's like a muscle. You're training in mindfulness right now. The ability to pay attention, right? Mostly we're spacing out in our lives. So we come here and it's intense. We're like, pay attention when you're chopping vegetables, when you're walking, when you're coming in the hall, when you're doing yoga. Can you know you're you're here, right? So it's a training. It's a beautiful training. And what happens, mindfulness gets stronger and stronger and stronger. It's like you're going to the gym when you're here. You're going to like kind of like a boot camp, right? Paying attention, paying attention. Okay, okay. And every day it gets better. You know, every day we wake up more. We notice more. We see more, right? We, it's like, oh, it's getting stronger, right? It's like a light and we keep turning it on brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. So we can see more. So infused with kindness, wherever that light shines, we can open to it. That's the key, is the opening part, right? We open. So the first aspect of that is the body, opening to the body. Yesterday I said, I think, was that today? I said, how many people are having body pain? It was like everybody raised their hand, right? So when we come to practice, we meet this hard clay body that we have. We're like, ah, right? And we suffer, right? Because a lot of times in our lives, we're ignoring it. Like we go, caffeine, and friend, and we kind of yell at our body, don't get sick, don't break down, I don't care, there's a lot going on, but don't, you know? And so we, we kind of, we subject our body to a lot. And then we have this intense judgment about any little thing that happens, right? Or, Maybe it's a little bulgy here. It's starting to get a little crack here. We're like, ah, and we really can get, you know. So our body, this is an earthy practice. Mindfulness is not a head trip. I worry that people in the West get really lost here, like thinking about, mm, it's all mind. This is an earthy practice. The Buddha sat naked on the earth for years. Right? This was not something he went to a school and studied books about. It was direct experience, sitting on the earth one moment at a time, feeling the body, right? Trying to work with the body, understanding the body. So when you sit here, awareness grounded in the body is the first foundation. Because we go not so much in our head, but we train 
Feel your feet. Right? We tell everyone, feel your feet. Feel your heart. Right? Get out of the head. There's a teacher here named Philip Moffat. He calls us the coconut. He always says, we got to get everyone out of the coconut. He has a Tennessee accent. <laughs> he says, we got to get them in their bodies. You know, I'm like, okay. But sometimes we don't want to be in our body. Like, body? What does this have to do with my body? Right? I thought it was all mind. It's connected. So we train by coming into your body. Your body is your friend. Right? This is the first foundation. It's your friend. It's where we learn to reside, where we rest our attention as we're starting to learn how to pay attention. Your body is always present. The mind is lost in stories. The body's here now. At any moment, you can come into your body and think, what's happening? Oh, there's vibration. Oh, there's, there's something going on in my back. Oh, you know, we can come into the body and know that it takes us into the present moment when we get lost. So it's a very profound um, way to learn to develop mindfulness. It's a key, it's one of the key features here. But that doesn't mean it's easy because the body has enormous energy. As you've seen, many people reporting today, feeling sick, on retreat, you know what can happen? All kinds of aches and pains. As the mind heals, the body goes through this whole process of letting go. Right? And people, I mean, I don't know if I should tell you, but sometimes people are vomiting and sweating and having asthma attacks and shivers. And there's a whole huge energetic phenomena. Right? Some people have reported this already. I'm like, wow, you guys are cooking. It's only day two, right? <laughs> and that's okay. You know, it's like we go, you know, we letting go. So all these energetic phenomena are part of the path. There's nothing really to be afraid of, actually. It's a shedding, but it can feel difficult as these knots weave their way out of the system. Just like the tangles in the mind are untangling, the body also gets tangled. The energy channels get tangled. We carry energy. So all of that begins to work itself out. And then also, you know, when we're here on retreat, you start to notice your reactivity. Has anyone noticed that today? You really get clear of what you like and what you do not like. <laughs> right? Like that, hate that. Right? It's like, we really see this kind of, you know, polarized way which we live our lives, right? I've got to get rid of that. So, so one of the other foundations, the second of mind, the mindfulness, is to notice when something, you don't like something and it's unpleasant, and when you like something and it's pleasant. You know, like if the cooks, they haven't made desserts yet, right? No, I don't think so. Sometimes they'll make all these cookies, right? And we're like, hmm, pleasant. And we'll just, you know, we don't realize that we ate 10, you know. Like, oh, it was just a pleasant moment. We don't get very many perks on retreat. So cookies and chocolate becomes kind of this like, it's a currency at the retreat centers. <laughs> Underground currency. Um so it's important that you start to notice how you create suffering, right? Remember, reality is kinder. So here's how we create stories. Just give you an example. We hear a sound. We think, oh my God, what is that sound? Is that a gunshot? Oh my God, is somebody walking around here with a gun? 
oh my God, you know, we can start build a huge story, right? Or we, we hear something and we make a story. We see somebody walking and we project on a whole story. All that happened was that we were seeing the senses, hearing, seeing, touching, tasting, smelling. It's important that you understand that's all that's ever happening. <laughs> that's it. Hearing, seeing, touching, tasting, smelling, and then making up stories about it in the mind. <laughs> right? Basically, those things are happening and we either like it or we don't. If you like it, the thoughts are, give me more. If we don't like it, I've got to get rid of this at all cost. Right? And we, we start creating a whole drama. Right? But really, it's just momentary. There's a smell. There's a sound. There's a sight. There's a taste. A thought went by. So the Buddha wanted us to reflect on this. Some are unpleasant. You know, we love tingles in the body, right? When we're tingling, we're like, oh, this is great. Tingles, light. We don't like stabbing sensations, (laughs) right? So like, this is terrible, right? It's just one's pleasant and one's unpleasant. (laughs) So there's this kind of way in which we stop getting on the reaction train and we just start being like, oh yeah, this is just unpleasant. Sayadaw Utanjaniya, who's this really great uh, Burmese teacher who everybody has really fallen in love with, many of the teachers, senior teachers, and he's just a great teacher. He was giving this talk last year, and he was saying, you Westerners, he was looking at, he's a monk, he's like, all you want is pleasant, 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 and pleasant. Now, is that fair, right? And and the way he said that, I was like, of course we know that's not fair, right? Of course there's pleasant and there's unpleasant. So it's, it's, we stop the story at just noting, oh, this is just an unpleasant sensation. We don't let it go crazy. And then there's a whole realm of neutral, right? There's a lot of neutral things, right? We don't need, we don't really love it and we don't not like it. It's just kind of happening, right? So there's, we usually space out on that, Right? We don't really understand calm very much. When people report calm uh, in meditation, they'll think something's wrong. And I'll say, I think what you're having is peace. And I'm like, oh, peace. I go, yeah, yeah. Learn that place. That's why you're here. <laughs> They're like, okay, there's nothing wrong. Because we can even make a problem out of that, right? I, I, I want to be the one crying and screaming in the woods. I want my money's worth. <laughs> Calm. Is this good? I, I don't know. Right? So you see, we're used to drama. Right? We, we live by this intensity all the time, all the time. The Buddha's asking us to get off the wheel of that. Right? We're exhausted, actually, by that. It's funny because we're all doing it, Right? But at the same time, at some point, you get really tired. You're like, get me off this thing, right? Highs and lows, drama, and we get so tired. This poem, one of my favorite all-time poems, it's read all the time by Neosho Ken Rinpoche, where he writes, rest in natural great peace. Neosho Ken Rinpoche is a great Tibetan master. He writes, rest in natural great peace. This exhausted mind, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thoughts, like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara. 
Rest in natural great peace. So we have to learn peace. It's an acquired taste, right? The more we rest in the present moment, we become familiar. Oh, this is calm. This is peace. We drink it in. Like, okay, there's nothing to have. There's nothing to do. There's no fire going off. A lot of times we just have alarms going off in our mind a lot. So we learn that in the third foundation of mindfulness. We start to look at the stories of the mind, all the concepts, right? We sit. The Buddha sat and he was like, these are just stories. They're just arising and passing. What if I didn't do anything with the whole trauma? And you know what happened? It passed away. He saw story after story after story. Your whole life will come with all the reviews, all the thoughts, all the judgments, right, that you may have with yourself. It's all just stories in the mind, right? It's just coming and going. Stories about other people. Stories of the end of the world, the beginning of the world, who we want to be, who we haven't been, right? Reliving our addictions or our suffering again and again, right? All these stories that the Buddha is like, we're none of these. And none of these are, we're not the emotion either. Okay, anger arises, Hatred arises, greed arises, aversion arises. None of these belong to us. These are energies. On retreat, you get visited by some really big energies. Okay? One is um, desire. Has anyone noticed that one? We just want something in this moment. It's like, I don't care what it is, right? It could be a latte could be we want someone else's pillow, their zafu. Could be that we want a new yoga outfit. Could be that we want to go to the bookstore and shop, just go online, right? We want, something isn't right. So this intense desire. Be on the lookout for this one. It's very, it masquerades as wisdom. Well, if you had this, then you would be able to meditate. Usually says that. Then you'd be calm, Right? Okay, so desire comes, it's ruthless with meditators. The moment you, even at your home, the moment you try to sit down, you might think, well, I need to call my aunt, someone you haven't talked to in 10 years. Yeah, I should call right now, that'd be good, right? Something always distracting, right? Always distracting, I see this with my own mind. Suddenly I have to go clean my closet right when I'm gonna meditate, right? Like, no, 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 sit down, (laughs) right? Be here. Okay, so desire and aversion. Aversion's the opposite. It's also, a, it's also a desire in that. These are typically called hindrances to practice, right? I have to call them the five demons. I just like the way it sounds a little bit better, but aversion. You have to get rid of something. That's the whole key to that. I can't meditate, you know? There's a beeping sound a mile away. Well, I better just get up, Right? It's aversion, avert, like we, have, we fixate. Also for a lot of new people, how this manifests on retreat, sometimes as we get these crushes on people, sometimes people call them Vipassana romance. It's where you see someone here and you're just like, yeah, we, we should get married. This is, they're mindful, I'm mindful. We both like salad or oatmeal. And we just think that we know everything about them. We make up all these stories. We have no idea who they are, nothing, right? And we just fixate, right? It's a very, I, I haven't really suffered from that very much, but other people become this huge part of the retreat. So notice, that's a form of desire. 
right? It can, that's why we say, please don't act out any notes, nothing, right? It's like, don't do it. So if you're feeling that, just work with it. It's profound, actually, doorway. And then the flip side of that, which is kind of sad, it's where somebody here is the vendetta, the Vipassana vendetta, something we project everything wrong with the entire planet on that one being, right? Just, ah, oh, how they eat, or what's going on with them, or they move too much, or they sneeze. Can't deal with it. And we project horrible things onto them. Both of these are aspects of the deluded mind, right? Sometimes I was on, one time I was on a long retreat and I did that to this woman who I felt like stomped around the meditation center. And at the end of the retreat, I found out she was this doctor, she was a baby doctor, surgeon, and was this beautiful being. I had nothing like I had projected. I thought she had all these issues. And, you know, and it was like, oh my God, I spent weeks being mentally sending this woman daggers. I was very young at the time. And I, I, it's like the power of deluded mind. So be on the lookout for that. You know what? Also, energies visit us too. Be mindful. Buddha's telling us to pay attention to desire, aversion, and the energies of sleepiness, which how many people have reported this? Almost everyone. <laughs> right? Sloth and torpor come. They just do. And they're, they're very interesting to work with. But they arise and pass. This is the key. Anything in your experience arises, passes. It's very important to see this, right? It's very important to see the beginning of a story. And then when it's no longer gripping you, it's like, oh, it's over. Most people suffer a lot, but by the time lunch is over, it's all resolved. Like, what was I so upset about? Everything passes. This is a key teaching in the Satipatthana Sutta. The Buddha was saying, pay attention to the rising, pay attention to the passing. You can be with anything if you know it's impermanent, right? Yeah, right? And if you have kindness there. So restlessness, which we've talked about today, where you want to scream and run out, that's the other energy. So we vacillate between sleepy, restless, restless, sleepy. And then we find over time a middle place, right? Where it's like we work with it. And then doubt. Doubt's a bit challenging. This is a mind state that comes and it basically starts to poke holes in everything. It's a tricky one. It starts to say, what is mindfulness? Maybe I should have been at the the dance retreat. Yeah, that would have been better. Who are these teachers? Are they, have to, are they enlightened? I don't think they are. I'm leaving, right? It's, that, it's like this doubt. The Buddha, I don't know. It's too hard. You know, we, we go into that. So be really mindful. And then self-doubt. I can't do it. I can't be present. So these are energies. And with that, everything else comes to. The key is to meet these with love is to meet these energies with kindness. When we're mindful of anything, as if it arises, we can meet it, we can work with it. Mindfulness isn't about getting rid of anything. It's a mirror. Whatever is appearing, it shows it. Oh, jealousy has appeared. Hmm, mindfulness, jealousy. Okay, it's, it's a radical honesty in, in mindfulness. It has no agenda. We sit and we open and whatever arises, we, we become real. We become honest with ourselves. 
we stop being deluded. We think, what is happening and can I be with what is happening no matter how bad it is? Sometimes people go on retreat and a lot of dark thoughts and shame and rage come. I always feel really happy for that. I know that sounds strange because I say, this is a part of the mind that is operating that we don't allow to be known. To wake up, we have to go into the underworld recesses of consciousness, right? We have to open all these old doors, right? Things that we've shut off, right? And then we see that they're, we see their empty nature, right? There was a book by uh, Paramahasa Yogananda, that book, Autobiography of a Yogi. It was a really great book written by this Hindu teacher. He was pretty fearless, but he had eight sisters or something like that, and he was very small. He was a young boy. They would tease him all the time, and they would always tell him there was ghosts, you know, in this area. And so one time they came up in the night, and there's a giant evil ghost that's in the cupboard over there. And then he was so excited. They were really surprised by his reaction. He ran over and opened it like, where's the ghost? (laughs) Like, you guys told me there was a ferocious ghost in here. I really wanted to see it. That's kind of how we have to be with our mind, right? Like, well, what's going on? This is really painful. Can I turn toward it? What's happening? The worst thing that's happening is a thought or an emotion. I guarantee it, or a body sensation. That's what's happening usually in the present moment. If you're sitting here, the worst thing that happens is something unpleasant happens in the body, a mind state, fear, anger, okay, or a thought in a story that feels unbearable. So if we can approach that with loving kindness, we have tremendous power Right? Mindfulness is courageous. And love is strong. See, love, the love part, there's an aspect of surrender in it. Like we surrender to the present moment. Because you can't really fight with the truth. Right? What's arising is going to arise. If we could order this, what would we have all day? Bliss, right? We don't wake up and go anxiety three hours and you know, self-hatred all afternoon, and then maybe some happy times in the Dharma talk, right? No, we would go, we would design it, right? Maximum, optimum joy, moment after moment, right? We're not in control of this, guys. (laughs) This is a vehicle that we are not in control. The only thing that we have power over is our reaction. Hence the Buddha saying, develop mindfulness. Real happiness comes from seeing the truth, right? Working with what happens, loving awareness. It's very powerful. And as insight grows, the fourth level of mindfulness is instead of our mind being filled with all these crazy channels, a Dharma channel begins to come on. The wisdom in the mind starts to develop. So then what flows in the mind is contemplating truth. Then your mind becomes a true refuge, right? When you're practicing, you're awake, you can actually trust what's unfolding. So pretty soon, instead of the mind being filled with a lot of delusion, is filled with wisdom, the Dharma, right? Practice, compassion, the Four Noble Truths. And we can start being aware of that. That's the fourth level, the more subtle level of mind. 
right? And again, that fuels us to practice more, more liberation. So mindfulness and metta, I want to stress that as you sit here in any moment and something is difficult, we name it, this is difficult. Even if you don't want to be with this, you can say that I don't want to be with this. Okay, aversion. Can I just have a little bit of compassion, a little bit of loving presence, right? What shall rise shall pass, right? Can I just be with it how it is, even if it hurts? Right? Love is attentive. John Kabat-Zinn, I think this was how he was telling me this. Um, last retreat, we taught a retreat a couple of months ago. He was just reminding me about John Kabat-Zinn, who, um, you know, the founder of the whole mindfulness-based stress reduction, and which is amazing. You know, he founded it in a hospital in Massachusetts to work with people who had basically had chronic pain, chronic suffering, and the doctors were just like, here, I, I can't sorry, you just got to live with it, basically. And he starts working. And one of his final analysis is, is that mindful, loving awareness, I think I said this the other day, applied towards suffering heals. It's magical in some way, right? People are getting better. Chronic pain diminishing, happiness rising, stress going down, Right? Even in the body, there's physiological things around mindfulness and love, and especially compassion. Right? It's like all kinds of new things. The brain lights up in certain areas, flooded with beautiful energy, cortisol, which is stress levels go down. Right? So these, these practices are not just kind of like airy-fairy, actually. Actually, it's science. No, this, is prof- this is becoming profound science. So to appreciate that, that what we're doing here is ancient. It has real impact, right? It's really important. And your practice is very important. Your healing is very important. So to practice with kindness and compassion, when it hurts, we, we offer ourselves loving attention that's the kindest thing you could do for yourself is learn how to be, pay attention to you. I mean, isn't that what we really want from others when we're suffering? It's like, honey, I'm in pain. Can you help me? Well, for a while, people do. Then, then they don't want to. They get bored of it, and they're like, no. They're fickle. Some days they want to be all into it. Some, so it's like, you better do it for yourself. right? So this is, offers us real freedom right, to understand the mind. And then the last thing I just want to mention is um, I saw this interview with the Dalai Lama and um, it was a beautiful question. I think it was on CNN. This wasn't that long ago, maybe eight months interview, eight months ago. And somebody asked him the question, if you could do one thing to the, for the United States or the United States could do one thing, right? That would change everything. What would you, what would you suggest? What would be your advice? That's a really profound question, right? It's like, if we could do one thing that would change everything in this country, like what would it be? And without a hesitation, he said, I would change the education system to teach people about mind. It's so fundamental, right? It should be science, math, mindfulness, mind, love, class, then on and, you know. It's like because without any knowledge of that, people have no lifeline, right? They don't, they don't have an understanding of how to work with this. 
And this is where everything is happening. We, we create heaven, we create hell. Freedom is found here, right? It's not outside, it's inner. So I'll end the talk. Just a reminder of how much of this is the inner path with the, my favorite Hopi creation story. So the creator gathered all of creation and said, I want to hide something from the humans until they are ready for it. It is the realization that they create their own reality. The eagle said, give it to me, I will take it to the moon. The creator said, no, one day they will go there and they'll find it. The salmon said, I will bury it at the bottom of the oceans. The creator said, no, they will go there too. The buffalo said, I will bury it out on the great plains. The creator said, no, they will cut into the skin of the earth and find it even there. Grandmother Mole, who lives in the breast of Mother Earth, and who has no physical eyes, but sees with spiritual eyes, she said, put it inside of them. And the Creator said, it is done. So let's just sit for a moment. And may our practice be for the upliftment and liberation of all beings everywhere. for your kind attention. We have a walking period and then we'll come back for uh, last session and chanting. Last supper, yeah. (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.